Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I'm TJ. And this is Serious Film People, a podcast about Best Picture nominees. Today we begin a new series. We are starting 1963. Yeah. So we will be watching the five films nominated that year, which are America, America, Cleopatra, How the West Was Won, Lilies of the Field, and Tom Jones. This week's film is America, America, written and directed by Elia Kazan. Had you guys seen... America, America before, or heard of it? Start with Ken, please. I, uh, I hadn't. No, in fact, I, I'd, uh, I don't know if I'd actually heard of it until fairly recently, until you you mentioned 1963 as a possible uh, uh, next uh, series to do. Mm-hmm. And I had to look into it, and I'm like, oh, it's a Kazan movie that's just kind of escaped me. So I was not very familiar with it. I had never seen it before. Yeah. And if I'm being completely honest, um, I I was it, it took me a bit to get actually get with it and sit down to watch this. Mm-hmm. I meant to watch it in parts all week, and it got to about Friday. It was like, you know what? I just got to start it and watch it. And um, it's a long one. You were I'm, uh, were you I'm, procrastinating or were you busy writing your Titanic screenplay? I was I was definitely <laughs> procrastinating. Ah. Um, yeah, no, I've. Uh, uh, the the screenplay is uh, we'll, we'll, we'll wait. It's How, gonna be a while. How's it going? Is it anything like it's that? In, right. It's in the outline okay. right now. Yeah, uh-huh. no, it, it's it's gonna be a while. No, it was just it was just classic procrastination. Honestly, the description, which I imagine you'll get to shortly, TJ, uh, it doesn't leap out at you as something that yeah, I want to sit down and get to. So that's why I was a bit hesitant to to just start it. But I'm glad I did. I'm, I'm looking mm-hmm. forward to this discussion. Actually, is the reason why because the description at least on Amazon and IMDb, is incredibly generic. <laughs> well, that, that I mean, I did look into the film. It's a, it's a I, without giving all of it away because you're going to describe it, it's a three-hour story about an immigrant's journey. It is. Um, it's not, and it's not, it's not a laugh-out-loud comedy, and <laughs> none of the cast are familiar. I looked Correct. at the cast list. The, the three of us, I was like looking at this list, and I'm like, even the three of us are not yeah. going to be able to pick up on most of these actors yeah. and be able to identify who Absolutely they are. Not. No. Josh, your uh, background with America, America. Uh, pretty much the same as Ken. Uh, I hadn't heard of it. Didn't know it existed until you mentioned 1963. And even when I saw the title, it didn't really ring any bells. Um, I didn't know it was uh, Aaliyah Kazan. I, I, don't, I don't have like the deepest familiarity with his mm-hmm. filmography, but like I know probably four or five movies he's made, and this was what, not one of them. Can you tell us the four or five um, that you know? Well, I know he made On the Waterfront, mm-hmm. most notably, which mm-hmm. I've seen, which will come up if we do 1954. Uh, he made A Street Crime Named Desire, yep. so another Brando effort. Kind of put Brando on the map there with that one. Um, I think he made The Last Tycoon. Is he that did, correct? yeah, the 1976 mm-hmm. okay. version. That's the one to Nero, uh, right? I think so, yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. Yes, I just mm-hmm. confirmed that. And Robert Mitchum, Tony Curtis, mm-hmm. etc. Um, and he made East of Eden with um, James James Dean. Yeah, James? Mm-hmm. yeah, James Dean. And okay, and he also made Splendor of the Grass, which was Warren Beatty, I think's first big movie. So like he not as familiar with that but one. He, but he kind of made a, a there was like a decade between like fifty one and sixty one where he gave several actors either big breaks or big opportunities mm-hmm. to do something with. Um, specifically Brando, Dean, and, and Beatty. And he was on the list of, I, I don't know where he was in the list, but directors who had most actors nominated for their films and winning Academy Awards mm. for their films. I think he was like fourth or fifth on there or something. 
Um, but he frequently directed actors to nominations and wins. Sorry, Josh, back to you. Including a Golden Globe here. Um, but yeah, that was pretty much the extent of my Aliyah Kazan filmography knowledge. I know a couple other things about him outside of his filmography, but in terms of the movies he made, that was pretty much what I knew. And so I hadn't heard of America, America until uh, we did it for this podcast, and I watched it over the course of last night and this morning. Did you procrastinate in order to write a Titanic screenplay also? <laughs> uh, I was actually on vacation this week uh, out of town, so I wouldn't, was not able to watch it earlier in the week. Uh, I went to the Very Grand nice. Canyon, which is pretty grand. I recommend wow. it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. It's a beautiful, America, America is a beautiful place. That's Indeed. It's, I'm glad, I'm glad I saw some pictures. Some... Wonderful pl- wonderful placement of the horizon in your photos. I did. I sent you uh, you and Ken both pictures. Right. And the, if the horizon is at the bottom of the image, it's interesting. <laughs> if it's in the middle of the image, it's boring as shit. <laughs> <laughs> David Lynch as John Ford. Yes. Go through the pavements. <laughs> How about you, TJ? What's your What's your history? Well, that rang in my brain um, earlier today as I was watching Badlands again. And anytime there's the vanishing point, I could just hear, it's boring as shit. Um, <laughs> so I, I had very vaguely heard of this movie from our dear friend of the show, Martin Scorsese. And we've mentioned before that he has a knack for just name dropping. The um, Red Shoes? Yes. What, or or during the Red Shoes? <laughs> uh, volumes uh, of on America, America. And that's what he did in some interview that I saw. And I knew that he was quite, he's quite fond of, of Elia Kazan. Um, I'm saying Kazan. I don't know if it's correct, but that's where I'm going with. He did a like one hour PBS documentary called My Letter to Elia. And he presented the Academy Award, the honorary Oscar to Elia Kazan, which is interesting Mm. that Kazan gets an honorary Oscar after having won Best Director which usually honorary Oscars are saved for people that they're like, oh, you're old and we missed you. Sorry. There's a really interesting thing, though. If you go back and watch De Niro and Scorsese presenting that with him, Ed Harris, Nick Nolte, many others, oh, yeah. not oh, looking yeah. very happy, yeah. refusing to clap. Why would that be, Ken? Yeah. Well, <laughs> there's there's a little bit of history for those who, who might not know about it, but in the early 50s, the late 40s and early 50s, there was a Red Scare in America. We were we were obviously starting off the Cold War with the Russians following World War II, and uh, the House Un-American activities had started up in Washington D.C. and they were trying to hunt down uh, known communists, particularly those who might be able to influence the public. So Hollywood was obviously a target, and uh, Ilya Kazan was actually initially he was brought in for a closed door uh, interview or interrogation by HUAC. They interrogated him privately. And the story goes that during that meeting, he refused to name names initially. Uh, He confirmed that he had been a Communist Party member back in the 30s. He had not been a Communist Party member for several years up to that point. So this is, again, 1952, about a decade before America, America. And he had, however, been um, in what was called the the Group Theater in New York back in the 30s, which had been started by Lee Strasberg. Um, Clifford Odets and, and Arthur Miller. There were a bunch of people, familiar people um, that, that, that listeners would know uh, who were involved in that early going uh, back in the 30s. And many of the members were communists. Uh, he, did, he did identify the fact that the founders of that group theater were not communists. So he did clarify that apparently in the interview. But he refused to name any names. And then he left. And HUAC threatened to uh, hold him in contempt of Congress and uh, subpoena him and drag him before a public hearing. And he's like, oh, well, this is 
this is just perfect, isn't it? And 20th Century Fox, who he had been working with at the time, they were backing, they, they backed Streetcar Named Desire that Josh mentioned. And he had a film that was in production, I think post-production at the time, called Viva uh, Zapatos. Is that, if I'm naming that correctly? Um, Viva Zapata. Uh, yeah, that's it. Viva Zapata, which I've never seen. But that was due to come out. And Daryl F. Zanuck, our friend from uh, uh, actually just uh, a couple weeks ago, if we if you recall, he was the producer of Wilson. Um, yeah. He's the studio head at 20th Century Fox. And he's, he told Kazan straight out, uh, yeah, you need to go back before Hueck and you need to name names. And if you don't, we're not going, we're not going to release your film and we're not going to work with you anymore. In fact, we're going to we're going to blacklist you in Hollywood ourselves. I, th- I think the thing that really turned him, though, was when Zanuck said, or I'll make you direct Wilson. To <laughs> <laughs> that, that definitely did it. You're, you're absolutely right, TJ. Because then immediately thereafter, uh, he had a sit-down with Clifford Odets, who was a good friend of his. The two of them decided, between the two of them, they would go ahead, testify before HUAC in a public hearing. They would name names. Both of them did end up naming names, including naming each other um, as being known communists back in the 30s. Um, they didn't necessarily name names at, like in the present day, but they decided to name names because otherwise their careers, they figured, were going to be over. And uh, Kazan made that bet. He lost a lot of friends. He lost a lot of respect oh, yeah. among people, particularly in the New York theater world, a lot of people in Hollywood. Um, and yet he still managed to find success. It's funny because he lost a lot of good friends who were writers, and so he he ended up seeking out a man by the name of uh, Bud Schulberg, who had also testified before HUAC and named names. Schulberg was a playwright and and, uh, writer who was working on adapting a story that he had concocted about uh, dock workers. And, of course, that ended up being Ah. on the waterfront. So Kazan did find success, obviously, post-Huac. In fact, most of his success came after his testifying. Um, but to your point about the Oscars, that was, I think, in 1999 is when he received his Lifetime Achievement then, yeah. Oscar. And, yeah, there was a lot of blowback when the Academy announced they were going to give it to him because a lot of people at the time were not okay with people who named names, even in the late 90s. And even despite all the success he had following his testimony. Um, there's just a lot of people who could not forgive and refuse to forgive what he'd done. And as TJ alluded, it's really interesting to like watch the YouTube clip of him receiving this honorary Oscar in 1999 because there are some people who are standing enthusiastically applauding Meryl Streep, chiefly among them, as, as I recall, because I saw this several years ago. But there are also many people who are either sitting, but like kind of politely clapping, but like definitely not standing up. And there are some people that are like pointedly sitting and not yes. clapping at all and like mm-hmm. frowning and like... Arms folded. This yeah. Arms folded. Yeah, exactly. Uh, among them, uh, Nick Nolte and Harris, well, among others. It's interesting to watch. It, it is of note. You're you're talking about the fact that it was De Niro and Scorsese who uh, presenting him with the the Oscar. A lot of the American New Wave filmmakers looked up to Kazan. They loved his films, particularly oh, yeah. I mean, Streetcar on on the Waterfront, East of Eden, and a lot of actors. You mentioned uh, Meryl Streep. A lot of actors also hold him in high regard because Ilya Kazan was one of the founders of the Actors Studio, along with Lee Strasberg, and one of the early proponents of The Method. And so yeah. there are, you talk about De Niro having presented him with the award, but for Kazan, as one of the instrumental leaders in the movement, um, the Actors Studio may not have gotten off the ground because it was in, in large part right. due to Kazan's success in the late 40s that they were able to found that. 
uh, that particular yeah. so, school. And Ken had mentioned like on the waterfront immediately after. A lot of people read on the waterfront as being kind of a defense of because yeah. because then defending the himself. hero names yes. names and on the waterfront <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly. So I, I'm curious to know, and I want to throw this to Josh first. Did Kazan's history, political history, color your viewing of America, America at all? Um, a little bit. Um, How so? It, it is, you know, I don't think we've said yet what this movie is, but it's, it's an mm-hmm. immigrant story. The whole the whole movie yeah. is just a journey from uh, Antolia. Is that where it is? Anatolia. Anatolia. Uh-huh. Yep. Excuse me. Anatolia to America uh, by a Greek immigrant who is um, Aaliyah Kazan's uncle. Um, Correct. Uh, dramatized retelling of something a journey that actually happened in his family um so it is like about i'm trying to relate like alia kazan to america in this story because mm-hmm. he he has an intro narration he has a closing narration so he centers himself uh not himself necessarily but like he basically says this is a very personal story to me and as proof of that here's my voice to introduce the movie etc um so it, america is clearly this like you know city on a hill you know this I- idealized um eden to get to that's worth uh three hours of very intense hardship to get to um and i i guess what crossed my mind was the idea of somebody climbing the ladder and then pulling the ladder up behind them at vis-a-vis an immigrant story and ali kazan naming names because lee Lee kazan made it got here found success and then in order to maintain that success felt the need to in a very literal sense, pull a ladder behind him and get eight people blacklisted from Hollywood and uh, mm-hmm. name their names to the U.S. government. So, I don't know. That just kind of crossed my mind a little bit. Um, also, just a, a preview of the letterbox section of this podcast. Uh, one of the top letterbox reviews mentions uh, Zoe Kazan, who yeah. is an, act- an, an actress and a writer who is uh, Aaliyah Kazan's granddaughter. That's right. right. Yeah. Y- you may know her from The Big Sick, uh, which is a movie I really like that she's in, uh, among other things. But... Um, she apparently said she she apparently once remarked on the legacy of her relative, saying that he testified before HUAC because his quote unquote Americanness was tested. And uh, the letterbox review continues: If this is true, then it is in America, America that Kazan reveals just how dearly he clutched this ideal of his Americanness. Hmm. So, I, I guess you could say that you know he made this movie eleven years after he testified before HUAC, but like it's almost saying like hey this is what america means to me you guys may question that because of what i did but like this is this is how i feel about it kind of thing so here's what the film is which josh sort of alluded to what's funny is if you go to amazon or imdb you get something like this a young greek stops at nothing to secure passage to america and that's it it's a three-hour movie <laughs> uh, <laughs> so to give you some some more there we're in the 1890s we're in the Ottoman Empire aspect of, or, sorry, area of Turkey. And Stavros is our main character. I'm not even going to try his last name. He is a Cappadocian Greek living there in poverty with his family, um, some of them even dwelling in caves. They witness several massacres against the Armenian people there, which puts the uh, impetus on his father to basically give him all of the hope of the family, all of the wealth and belongings of the family to send him to Constantinople in hopes of becoming established, and then one by one sending back for his siblings, his mother, and then eventually it would be the father himself. So Stavros begins this journey, basically on foot with a donkey, 
meets up with this other man who really sucks and we'll go into yeah. <laughs> more later who um who fools him and takes advantage of stavros as naivete he keeps calling and... him brother like hulk hogan yes he does <laughs> give me your him. donkey brother <laughs> what's yours is mine brother and what's mine is yours brother leaves him essentially penniless when he finally arrives at his uncle's um his uncle proposes that he marry a wealthy merchant's daughter and the conflict then that stavros has is if he marries this daughter that it's going to make him sacrifice his dream to go to america um i'm, I'm gonna leave it there just so that we can discuss the ending and some decisions that he makes later but as i mentioned written and directed by elia kazan edited by dd allen Cinematography by Haskell Wexler, who I would like to talk about later. And also, as we mentioned earlier, filled with non-actors or unknown actors. The lead, Stavros, is played by a fellow named Stathis Gialelis. Others include Frank Wolf, Harry Davis, Alina Karam, Carrie Elways, Lou Antonio, Salim Ludwig, John Marley. You guys didn't even pick up my camera. I was, I was really, I was going to catch you <laughs> you finish. Because I was like, what are you talking about? Carrie <laughs> Always is not in this. I just want to see if you pick that up. Um, and uh, yes, a cast of mostly mostly unknowns in it. And that's where I'd like to start with our discussion here is Stathis Gialelis, which I know I'm mispronouncing. He like really, really badgered Elia Kazan for this role. He really wanted to be in this role. And Kazan was not convinced that he had, as, as a non-actor, that he had the gravitas to carry a, the role of this movie that says baby that he had been making, trying to make for 20 years, where this character Stavros is in pretty much every single scene. His, his performance was pretty well received. He did win a Golden Globe for Best Newcomer and was nominated for Best Actor at the Golden Globes. But then after this, he basically played... A handful of kind of bit parts and supporting roles which he said was pretty much because he had a heavy accent and a distinct inflection that he didn't get leading roles um so much of the movie really lays on his shoulders so i was wondering what your impressions of stathis's performance were in the film josh i was i was pretty unimpressed honestly um I think you say somewhere else in the outline about close-ups and uh, Kazan's use of close-ups. And I feel like so much of this performance is just like a close-up of him and him like looking off with like his eyes kind of narrowed. And that's, I feel like that's like 40% of this performance is just that. Like him kind of giving that off look. And um, I don't know. I, I kind of didn't, didn't really buy it. He's not very reactive or, you know, he, he's not very expressive, I guess I should say. And um, I feel like the people around him, are a lot better than he is and uh it's almost distracting like how little he was emoting for me especially going through a pretty tumultuous journey i kind of wanted a bigger reaction to him mm-hmm. in a lot of ways and and the times that he did go big i kind of like kind of brushed me as fake um we can talk about those okay. i guess later but yeah uh, i was i was kind of not very impressed unfortunately because you're right he is he is a lot of the movie he's a lot of the movie yeah ken what'd you think yeah, yeah. i i've got notes here that include uh Stavros is, is coming off quite stiff for me. He's um, and then at other times he's trying too hard. Um, I'll be honest, there are a couple of seminal moments in particular that jumped out. Um, how disappointed I was with the the performance we were getting, and they're both involving Tomna. the The first one is okay. when they're in the apartment together. They've just gotten they've just received from her father. 
um, ahead of their impending marriage. And then the other one is when he's shaved his mustache and is about to actually, he's got a, he's got a boat <laughs> ticket and is about to leave. And I feel like he's just not giving the actress he's working with enough, nor is he giving us as the audience enough. Because to Josh's point, like he's the epicenter. He's in almost every scene of this three hour long movie. And he's just not, it's, it's like he's trying to find the character rather than allowing anything natural to occur within the scene particularly seen in the apartment she is giving him an awful lot of emotion she's throwing an awful lot at him and i'm not sure if i'm watching the actor try to figure out in real time how to react i'm not sure if he's trying to actually do something with the character because he's just kind of standing there and kind of looking off and looking a little nervous and it's just you're not sure what emotion I'm actually getting from him, what he's, what's going through his mind, and why he's just not interacting with her more, why he's not just, you know, yeah. acting with her. If, if I correct me if I'm wrong, the scene you're talking about is when they sort of get the apartment, they're they're affianced, and they get this apartment that her father gives to them, and they are left alone for basically the first time. Right. And she is talking about, oh, I wish I was prettier for you. Um, you know, basically, here's the type of woman and the type of wife that I can be for you. But I know that I'm supposed to be so, sub- uh, you know, submissive to you and obedient to you. And I'll give you all these children. And we know from having watched him for about an hour and a half that he is f- he faked his way into this marriage by lying that his father owned a lot of businesses as a way he and he even talked to the dowry down to just the price enough to get to to get on the boat to go to america so as her father in the previous scene had just unraveled all of this like here's what our lives are going to be right he's sitting there going basically oh shit no i'm a terrible person because this woman's life has completely changed for me now and i'm really just ready to get the hell out of here and go to america um, so she's, she's, uh, opening up all of this to him and, and even saying to him, why don't you ever talk to me? You don't say anything to me. Why don't you ever talk to me? Um, Josh, you also mentioned that there were some scenes that other people were sort of giving him more than he was giving back. Was, was that one or do you have others to, to mention? Um, honestly, like most of them, like the scenes with his dad, I think his dad was given a lot more and, and his mom, too. his mom doesn't interact with him as much, but she's kind of like there when he's interacting with his dad. Um, when he's with the, uh, what's the family later on? When he's on the boat, Kebabians. the Kebabians. Kebab- yeah, the Kebabians. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, both of them. I feel like we're we're given more, uh, especially the the patriarch of that family. Um, oh, uh, the 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 heel you mentioned, the first encounters on his journey, who kind of uh. steals all his stuff, like the brother guy. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, like, Abdul. I feel like Abdul. Yeah, most times he's sharing the screen with somebody, they're out acting him. If it, it felt oh like yeah, him. okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I liked particularly uh, the actor's name is John Marley and his character was Gab Garabet, I think. Uh, he's one of the kind of fellow paupers that helps him find where he can eat from the Sultan's scraps. And that guy was a Cassavetes actor. I think he was in Faces by John Cassavetes. And I thought that guy was more, quite good. More importantly, he's Jack Wolf, the Godfather. He's the guy with the horse head. Oh, done. I thought he looked familiar. <laughs> oh, that guy. <laughs> John Marley. Yeah. Oh! <laughs> um, okay. So if I was going to play devil's advocate, though, I might suggest that the holding in of all of these emotions have to do with him not ever, especially after being robbed by 
Abdul not ever really wanting to show his hand and not ever really wanting to, you know, he says later, you can't trust people. People just completely destroy you. Um, right. Is what would you what would you make of that rather generous reading of his stoic emotionlessness? Well, I would think number one, he's like that before he gets taken advantage of. That okay. expression doesn't change from you know uh, before and after. And number two, um, I guess that is gen- a generous read. You could say blankness is just distrust, but I see blankness. Mm-hmm. Okay. Personally, so yeah, can you too? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't have any additional comment. I'm just, he's, I, I, he's just not doing it for me, which is unfortunate. It's just, Fair enough, I don't, I enough. just, I'm not getting a whole lot from him, which is unfortunate. And I say it's unfortunate because so much of this film, I am surprised by how much I like it and how much it's working for me. Um, you're particularly, when you're talking about, all of the scenes with John Marley, I'm, I'm impressed by the depth of character in, in some of these characters, the, the substance yeah. behind them. There's a nuance there that I, you're not necessarily expecting with a, a large cast where we're jumping around from scene to scene and person to person. I mean, he starts out as a John Marley's character. Um, I think Garabat is, is supposed to be his name. Um, he starts out seemingly a womanizer, at least his only, his only interest seemed to be getting work or working to make some money to be with women and it turns out he's actually like a revolutionary like he's got high ideals and he's got principles and he's got kind of an underground movement that he's part of and Marley <laughs> kind of threads it because he's he's on one hand a mentor for Stavros and looking out for him and on the other hand he's got all of the all of the things he's warning Stavros of, of being essentially like being all you know too too expectation having too many expectations about himself and here he is trying to basically change the world in which they live. Um, yeah. I, I found characters like that to be quite interesting. And Stavros, unfortunately, is just he's because he's at the forefront of every of every scene. He's our protagonist. We've got to follow his story, and just not getting that kind of depth. And a large part, I think, it's because of the fact uh, Kazan is betting on this this young Greek actor who to, to his credit, cause I'm, he's thinking, I think along the lines that a lot of directors and filmmakers might be thinking, um, when you're going to do a film like this, an immigrant story. Um, yeah, yeah. You find somebody unknown, you find somebody new green behind the ears. And, uh, it just, I'm not sure that it works entirely here. It's also a little odd when you compare to the fact he's the only one with an accent. And most of the cast are clearly American <laughs> yeah. character actors. Yeah. Yeah. And nobody attempts an accent. So you both have hit on that, that an issue you have is both the performance, but also that the hero is kind of bland. And the movie has kind of an episodic, picaresque structure to it in a way that I actually recalled Boyhood for me in interesting ways. And I remember that one of the critiques lodged against Boyhood was that the main character was too boring and vapid for that movie. Um, I I don't necessarily agree with that, but that was something that came up. Uh, About this film, Pauline Kael wrote, the hero is so blandly uninteresting that there's nothing to hold the film together. And Andrew Saris said uh, he critiqued the pointless intimacy of the close-up. He says that Kazan comes becomes sidetracked more than his errant hero. And then lastly, Scott Tobias calls it a rude, clunky piece of writing hampered by variable performances. Did either of those three critical voices kind of ring true to something that you guys experienced or is there any way you, anyone you'd want to respond to 
Well, the close-up thing I kind of already mentioned. Like, I, you were nice enough to provide that quote to us before I actually sat down and watched the movie, so I was kind of thinking about that. And, like, the close-ups kind of bumped me a bit. I kind of already mentioned that, like, a lot like a lot of his performance just kind of him not reacting in a close-up. And okay. so uh, I'm glad somebody smarter than me pointed that out before <laughs> so I didn't have to. Pauline Kale, I tried to seek out her full review, but I couldn't find it anywhere. This is a movie that's weirdly hard to like read about. <laughs> I yeah. think we discussed yeah. on and off mic. But uh, the hero is so blandly uninteresting, there's nothing to hold the film together. Um, I kind of see that, and I wonder if part of that is because – I'm trying to distinct this from Boyhood because it's an interesting comparison you made. Um, in Boyhood, I think it's – I think in both movies it's clear like what's holding them down and why they want something outside of what they're getting. And – why they're both looking forward to something better but I don't, I don't know like we we see so little of america in this movie and like he knows so little about it himself that like it it is it is it weird that i think it's strange how like badly he wants this when he knows so little about it you know or am i just being hard-hearted i don't think i don't think that's strange at all i think that's that's within the film that it exists as a sort of promised land mythical place for him. And at times it's at least seemed to me that he less wanted to go to America more than he wanted to get the hell out of Turkey. But he was, yeah, that's true. I mean, he was in Constantinople, Constantinople now Istanbul and like was in a position where he could marry the rich guy's daughter and live there. And like, that's definitely a better life than the one he had. Yes. But, he still was like, no, I don't want this time to go to America. And I can't do this because it would ruin my chances to go to America. So I'm going to throw this yeah. away so I can go to America. And I, I get the idea of like it being better than your current – or you assume it's better than your current situation. But also I, it seems like Kazan is kind of like assuming the audience just like takes that at face value that like America is the promised land. And if, uh, uh, it doesn't need to explain why he wants this so badly. Um, and I don't know. Maybe, maybe it <laughs> – Maybe that bumped me a bit and kind of made some of his some of the extremes the extreme things he does uh, make less sense to me given yeah. how little he knows I guess. I I actually uh, I actually love a certain aspect of of this part of the film, um, particularly the fact that while I'm not entirely convinced it's how I'm supposed to interpret the film, but you know what, screw correct interpretation I guess. Um, I see something that I appreciate in that uh, at many points throughout the film, you, as Josh is alluding to, you second guess Stavros's judgment and this blind determination to, to get to America. Um, no more so when he is with Tomna, and it seems like, wow, this yeah. perfect family that he even admits he quite likes. Like, it, it's amazing uh, that this opportunity that's fallen into his lap, basically. Um, but the trials, tribulations, and, and all of the losses that we see suffered by him and other immigrants, including uh, Johannes, who I'm assuming we'll talk to shortly, um, yep. they're on some level symbolic of not only life, but a very particular kind of life, particularly immigrants in the late 19th and early 20th century. It's not necessarily that they're throwing away um, something that they think they have. It's just their realization of there being an opportunity for a better life or a great life and trying to get to that point is worth risking whatever life they currently have and they're dissatisfied with um stavros i think i think we're led to to assume or we get the idea that 
at least I felt this way, um, Vartan, who is the Armenian friend he has in the town at the beginning of the film, he's the first one that appears to put into Stavros's mind the idea of going to America, um, the idea of getting away in you know, the, the mountains. Like They're having the discussion about everything's bigger in, in, uh, in America, which I think he was confused by. Everything's bigger in Texas, not America as a whole, but that's beside <laughs> the point. Uh, there's that there's just it's it's in his it's seated in his mind early on and then of course farton dies in sacrificing himself for his armenian friends and family and it feels like the rest of the film stavros is willing to do anything literally suffer any level of of indignity sacrifice anything to kind of make that happen because the very last thing vartan does before sacrificing himself is when they're dancing which is a wonderful little scene i think the two of them are dancing to the Greek music in the little bar or the, the little home or whatever it is, and Vartan whispers to him that they should just go now, like they should just head off. And from that point on, Stavros is just so determined that nothing can sway him, even when he gets to Constantinople and is uh, is engaged to be married. And actually, there is that there's a moment, I think briefly, particularly when he's in the apartment, where you might suspect he's actually second-guessing himself, um, and yet he just kind of just forces himself through it. No, no, I'm not going to give in. I've got to go, and I've got to make this happen. Um, and I'm not, I'm not necessarily convinced that Kazan believes that, oh, yeah, America is, in fact, all that much better, because, I mean, the movie ends with him shining shoes for, like, a, a quarter or something, and it's not that luxurious a lifestyle he's already been warned by several people that america is not much better than istanbul if you don't have money or i should say constantinople at the time if you don't have money um but yet it's it's the opportunity i think that awaits it's something new it's something different it's the chance to to start something where you're not necessarily subservient to um, a, a, a lord you're not necessarily there's nobody who has control over you because early on when we're in the town You've got the, gov- the the Turkish governor who has control over all of the Greeks, and particularly the Armenians. He's trying to, they're, they're obviously the Turks at the time, um, are trying to, basically, they're massacring uh, the Armenians. And the Greeks, you know what? They're, they're basically to do whatever the Turks tell them to do because they just want to survive. And we see that with his father, kowtowing to the governor, yeah. and he doesn't want that. And in America, the, the assumption is at the time, you don't have to do that. You might not succeed, but you're not necessarily under anybody else. You're not controlled. And I, and I think a key also to kind of what reignites is wanting to get to America when he starts getting more comfortable. And I want to put a pin in this is running into Johannes again and seeing his shoes. Right. Yeah. And that the shoes become a visualization and a representation of tireless persistence. And he's seeing that I, I gave this to this man and look what he made out of it there. And I think it kind of rekindles some inspiration for him within the second half of the movie. Uh, you both have mentioned, you know, Kazan's view of like America's even better than Constantinople, that America is this mythos, mythical promised land in there. Think about this coming out in the 1960s. So not just like the history that we talked about that Kazan had, but in the early 1960s when this movie would have been in production, you're getting you know, the election of JFK, you're getting some progress within the civil rights movement, you're getting promises of the Great Society, the New Frontier, government has the ans- big answers to big problems. Do you think 
or in what ways might all of that be behind some of the dramatic and thematic focus of the film? Uh, well, I, I don't think you could ever in a movie like this take away the the external factors that are at play, particularly on a, a writer and director. I mean, this is, as we mentioned, I think adapted from a book that Kazan had literally just written and released the year before. Um, so he's literally been writing this, this, this whole idea has come about during, as you put it, the Kennedy administration. This is the early 60s. Um, times are about to be changing as they're actually already starting to change. Um, and yeah, coming out of the 50s, there's kind of an unrest in America. And uh, that's why I just don't feel completely bought into the idea that the film is suggesting America is in fact this this truly great, this, this you know, capital, capital G great place to go or end up, and that it is the best, best place in the world. More so, it's just reflective of the people, particularly um, in the early 20th century, and them trying to get away from something, which is a feeling that I think a lot of people probably have, and probably something that's to plenty of younger people in the 1960s here in america again there's unrest there's there's dissatisfaction and while certainly their lives are not anywhere near as bad as the turkish and armenian people in turkey in the 1890s were um there is a familiarity and there is a recognition i think that yeah i can see where people who are not necessarily well off or just people in general particularly youth um, they're always striving for something better. They're always striving for the opportunity to leave a legacy, leave a mark, and experience some something worth living for. Because the idea that yeah. his family, they're just kind of going through the motions. There's not much of a life really there. They're living, but they're it's more surviving than, than really embracing anything. And yeah. I think that's I think that speaks more so to people and audiences in the early sixties than specifically trying to highlight how great America is. More so, it's just understanding that feeling. Josh, where do you see history in this movie? Yeah, I guess with hindsight, it's... I I don't know what the feeling was in the early 60s when Kennedy was elected, etc., but probably one of, like, um, hope and the future is bright, but also kind of acknowledging that America is a work in progress, you know, especially with the civil rights movement uh, gaining steam around this time. Um, You know, America's... Not perfect, but we're on our way. You know, we're we're getting there. It's probably maybe I'm projecting, but that's probably how some people felt. And you look at this movie where the area he's leaving is um, uh, at the at the time of the events in the movie, the Armenian genocide had not yet happened. It's still about twenty years out, but like that had happened by the time the movie was made. And um, the events we see in the first act of the movie is of the. Hamidian massacres, which killed a few hundred thousand Armenians and others. Um, not quite the genocide that killed a million Armenians, but, you know, um, I, I guess what I'm saying is America's a work in progress, but, like, look at what other people are dealing with elsewhere and, like, isn't, you know, um, isn't America is a beacon, you know, relatively speaking in those terms. So, like, yeah, it may be there may be turmoil in our recent past and possibly turmoil in our future. They didn't know that in 1963, but there was turmoil in the future. But um, it still was like a place worth going through hardship to get to, I guess. 
Yeah. Well, on that note, with the hardship, I was struck at the ending of the movie. I'm going to spoil here. When he gets to, he sees the Statue of Liberty. He's on the boat. He makes it. Um, he he essentially gets baptized because he talks about jumping into the waters and learning to swim when you need to learn to swim. After Doesn't he the guy at Ellis this... Island literally say you're baptized now? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Yeah. After after sort of being possessed and jumping out and doing this dance in the middle of, of someone's um is that what he was doing? Party. I didn't get that at all. I didn't get uh, what was went, happening. He was there. doing something. He was he was doing okay. something. Um, and so he gets baptized. He gets renamed in a, a scene where he gives his name, and the guy's like, uh, "Joe, you're gonna be Joe." Well, he doesn't give his name. He yeah. gives his friend's name. Johannes. Exactly. Johannes. Yes. Joe. Yeah. Johannes. Joe Ernest. Joe Ernest. Joe Ernest. There you go. Yes. So I'm, I, and knowing the sacrifice that Johannes went through, because Johannes is on the boat. He's very sick, um, coughing a lot. And he leaves basically the approval papers that he gets there because Stavros is wanted for having slept with <laughs> that guy's wife, um, that he's going to send him back home. So he leaves him the shoes and he leaves him the note of approval. Um, and I'm struck that the end is presented in this really sort of delicate and celebratory light. But you look back on it and you see how much of the film really is about loss and about sacrifice and all of the bad things that have to happen in order for him to get there. So... I was curious how you guys were struck by the ending and the way that the achieve, achieving of the American dream sits next to the, the very present reality of all of these losses and sacrifices that must be made. You said it. Well said. Yeah. <laughs> sacrifices. Well, well, where else do you think? I mean, where does the film leave us? Does the film leave us with a the sacrifices were worth it? Or does the film leave us with a... You know, damnation of what immigrants have to go through. What do you think this, we're left this, with? This is going to sound cynical, but like because again, Aliyah Kazan, the director, used his own voice and to set up the movie in the opening narration, and used his own voice to basically read us the credits at the end of the movie. Um, <laughs> I think a cynical way to read this is: isn't it great that he went through this, and now you have me and my movies here in the <laughs> United States? You wouldn't have gotten on the waterfront. Oof. And you wouldn't have gotten a street credit desire if this guy hadn't gone through that journey. So wasn't it so worth it? It's crazy how not far off you might be. <laughs> do, you, do you think it was that? Do you think it was that? Like you should be glad, or just that I'm glad? I, I I'm not sure. There's a, a meaningful difference between those two, maybe. Well, if we think about other sort of personal history movies that celebrate oneself. There, there's often a conversation that goes with like, is this is this a reverie that I'm sharing, or is this self congratulating and self importance? Right. This was a conversation that went around films last year, like Bardo, The Fablemans, etc., where it's like, um, is this somebody making art out of the conditions that produced them, or is this somebody going, wouldn't you love to know how great I am as Steven Spielberg or Inari too, or uh, so, so there's a distinction to be made, I think. I guess I'll come back to something I already said then. Like, the movie kind of takes for granted that America is always worth it. So, like, what we're left with is he makes it to America and he says to, <laughs> in kind of a clever by half moment, he says to the next customer, hurry up, sir, there are people waiting. And then, like, him saying there are people waiting kind of rings in our ears over and over again as it, like, cuts to the faces of his family, of his brothers and sisters who are still back in, uh, Anatolia? Anatolia? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there are people waiting. There are people waiting. There are people waiting. So um, the movie's conclusion is he went through all this hardship, but he made himself a better life and was able to give the same better life to his brothers and brothers and sisters and mother. So isn't that great? I guess. And again, the movie kind of just like assumes the audience agrees that this will always be a better life than anything anywhere else than Istanbul, than Constantinople, you know? Um, and do, are, are we shown that or are we just like supposed to conclude that because we live in America and think that it's the best place, you know? Um, I, I don't think we're really shown anything like that. We're just kind of like just – he kind of just says to us, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him making this journey. He, he doesn't say those exact words but close to those exact words. I'm only very lightly paraphrasing. So yeah. the conclusion is I'm here because he made it. That's kind of what the movie leaves us with, right? Yeah. Okay. So I, I'm yeah. going to to jump off. I think Josh is correct. I think that's the way Kazan is probably intending us to, to interpret this film or at least receive this film. I don't think that that really works. Um, on the flip side, I'm not sure that you have to conclude that the sacrifices that are made um, are are worth it or not. I think the reality is, is just that this film, if you look at this film as depicting the immigrant story, the sacrifices are just a reality. They're going to happen. Whether they're worth it or not is kind of irrelevant to the fact that it's going to happen. And so I found that far more compelling to watch than trying to determine whether or not everything he does is in fact worth it. Because as I mentioned earlier, I'm constantly second-guessing Stavros. I mean, if I were him, I probably would just stick with Tomna and, and the family in, in Constantinople because that sounds really lovely. Like, they're welcoming him. Especially if you were a dude because that guy, that dad was all kinds of sexist. He was he was ready to have a quote-unquote son, right? It's his son-in-law, but he's, oh my he's, he's going to adopt that guy as if he were his own son. And yes, to be, let's be clear. Life in Turkey <laughs> in the 1890s, not a great place for women. It doesn't matter whether you were Turkish, Armenian, or Greek. All of the women were subservient to the men, and not in like a mm-hmm. not in like a, a, a subtle way. It's like straight up honeymooners esque. I'm gonna you know to the moon, Alice level yeah. subservience. <laughs> right, right. It's uh, which which interestingly on the flip side we meet the Kababians. Did I say that correctly? Yes. Who the yeah. the, the husband was Greek, I believe, and marries his wife takes her to america they've been married 20 something years raised kids and she's like now i'm basically this lonely old woman she's like 43 or something like that and isn't getting any attention isn't getting any from her husband and i don't think i'm overstating it when i say she like comes to orgasm when stavros just kisses her hand and then later he becomes her kind of f-boy on the ship um, so th- there's an interesting pairing of the, like, what are women getting out of any of this on both sides of, of, um, that experience, you know, um, he even says to her, Oh, what you shake hands like this in America. And, and they do that with women too. And, and women. she's like, Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's, there's an indication there that there's more social progress, uh, having to do with gender, but she's not very happy either. Okay, so you mentioned other you know, just films of the immigrant experience. I thought a lot of the film A Better Life while I was watching this. I don't know if you guys have seen that. Um, it came out in 2000, early 2010s, I think, starring Damien Bashir, who was nominated for an Academy Award for it. Um, and he is 
a, an impoverished Mex Mexican man trying to get his son across the U.S. border. Did you think of any other cinematic representations of the immigrant experience when you were watching this, and how might this compare with them, Josh? Well, I did because you asked me to <laughs> before I started watching. Um, I thought of The Godfather Part Two, oh. which includes Vito Corleone's immigration to the United States from Sicily. Uh, I thought of uh, An American Tale, which is the five old and his family coming to mm -hmm. America. Uh, I thought of Paddington, which is not the American immigrant experience, but it is an immigrant story to the UK. Um, and I think the difference between those three and this is that um, most of those three, like we see life in the pre-America or pre-destination area briefly in Act 1, but most of the movie is the immigrant experience having already arrived. And we have maybe three minutes of post-arrival of the immigrant experience here. Most of it's just the journey itself, which brought me to a movie called Sin Nombre from, I think, 2009, uh, uh, Kerry mm -hmm. Fukunaga's uh, first movie. Yeah, um, which is one. about you haven't seen that no i haven't uh it's good it's about a uh girl and her father and uh i think other members of the family on a train through mexico to get to the united states to get the southern border i can't remember if they're from mexico or if they're from one of the other countries south of mexico i can't remember but uh it's a pretty harrowing journey um mm. they encounter ms-13 there are machetes uh Jeez. it's pretty graphic um but that is like more uh a movie about the journey and not to give anything away, but like there is a very, very brief scene in America at the very end of the movie, much like this one, but that's like the closest uh, in terms of like how much the story is dedicated to the journey and how much is dedicated to the destination. That was like the closest I could think of for cinematic depictions of the immigrant experience. Um, I like that movie more than this one, <laughs> but uh, okay. they're both kind of in that same lane, I guess, of being about the journey and the hardship. Yeah. Yeah. Ken, do you see other, um, descendants of this? Uh, well, I mean, I'll be completely honest. The first thing that did pop to mind watching this film was uh, Godfather, uh, God, The Godfather and Godfather Part Two, um, because if for no other reason, his actual journey in this movie reminded me so much of the journey in those movies depicted that as of uh, Vito Corleone in Sicily, because I guess the we're talking about near Mediterranean um, geography, so it's just it's somewhat similar. Mm -hmm. Also, somewhat similar time period, uh, but I, I also thought about um, movies like Persepolis and uh, one that I really loved from a couple years ago, Flea, which was an animated um, film. Oh yeah, um, that depicted the journey and not not easy too, difficult journeys, um, and so those those popped to mind. Um, but I I think part of why I like this film so much is because. It's not not necessarily oh it's three hours, but in those three hours he puts a lot of effort into trying to depict so many different kinds of people that you might meet along this journey. Other people who either are also wanting to go to America or could who could could use uh, a new opportunity um, somewhere else, or on the flip side those who aren't interested in immigrate or emigrating. Uh, away from where they are at the time, right. who, are, who are pretty much satisfied with their life. And I like the fact that we see a variety of those characters, and we seem to get um, rather personal interactions with them throughout the film. And so to the extent that Stavros might not be the best vehicle, it sounds like, um, to, to <laughs> kind of occupy, have the audience follow along um, with him specifically, 
all of the interactions he has, I find something interesting in the character. Even Abdul, who as as smarmy and annoying as he might be, uh. um, there's a certain kind of charm and also, and I think that's more about Lumentonio, the, the character actor playing the part, but there's this reality of this guy's just kind of doing what he he has come to understand is necessary, right? Like, this is just the way the world is where they live. And he, he's got he's to do what he's got to do. And he suggests that he's done it before. Like, this is not new for him. It's just how he survives. And yeah. if, you know, if the, he's the kind of person that, honestly, he could probably use a legitimate opportunity to do something with his life. I'm not saying he, he'd actually take it. Um, but for the time being, all these people are kind of just stuck in a static situation where they fill a they fill a role in this this almost third world esque situation and um, there's there's increasingly less hope. They just take opportunities as little and, and tiny and sometimes horrible as they are and and just do what do with them what they can. Um, so I, I'm I'm getting off on a tangent here, but I guess my point is I uh, I actually quite like this film as emblematic of the immigrant's journey. And while there are a few others that come to mind, I was pleasantly surprised with this one. Okay. We've, we've talked a lot about um, themes and kind of the narrative thrust of the movie. One thing we haven't really gotten to yet that I do want to talk about is um, the aesthetics of the movie. And we've mentioned several times Kazan's style with method acting, with these sort of heightened and electric emotional um, expressions that he writes into his scenes, but also that he elicits from his actors. He also was big on commitments to shooting on location and tackling some pretty serious subject matter. And for that reason, you can see a lot of his trademarks in, you know, the, the sort of new Hollywood or the new American wave of films that come in the, in the mid to late 60s and then into the 70s. You can see a lot of this in, for example, the work of Martin Scorsese. Um, one thing I really appreciated in this film is hot damn does that black and white look great. And I love black yeah. and white. I am that's an easy win for me. But this film is lensed by Haskell Wexler, yes. who, if you don't know who Has Haskell Wexler is, I believe he won two Academy Awards for cinematography. And um, he directed some films. Medium Cool was was kind of his main one that he directed. But his compositions and his stark contrasts between dark dark and light light in in his black and white photography creates this dance of shadows that he, he was named one of the 10 most influential cinematographers of all time. And is one of, I think just six to have a star on the Hollywood walk of fame. So I was a big fan of his, he, he got fired from one for the cuckoo's nest. Um, and he got fired from the conversation. Um, and he worked as a backup to Nestor Alm Almendros on Terrence Malick's days of heaven. He didn't, he didn't um, just work as a backup. He actually worked with, Alindros. Um and yeah, real, yeah. real quick to come back. Don't just let's not fly over. He was he was he rather <laughs> infamously fired by both Coppola and Milos Forman. Yeah. Uh doing he was working on the conversation with Flora Cuckoo's Nest. I absolutely love the this is a trivia fact. He was replaced in both cases by a man named Bill yes. Butler, the same guy who replaced him on both projects. Um mm -hmm. Bill Butler, famous most famous for having picked up uh Wexler's droppings is basically 
I think, pretty much (laughs) (laughs) with the conclusion there. He also, at this time, this is 1962, I think, when they're filming this, 1962, early 63. Um, But around this time, he, Wexler, was very significant in getting George Lucas into USC Film School. Um, Wexler was an early early, um, player in the industry who Lucas had befriended or made contact with. And used to basically and getting, uh, well, yeah, and getting American graffiti funded. Yeah, later on. Yeah, come. Yeah, decade and a half after this, or, or actually a little over a decade, I guess. Later, um, it, it's interesting. You're talking. We're talking about Wexler and his black and white photography. It strikes me just a couple years after this, he does Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, oh, which is a, and that movie is stunning. Yes, I was just about to say it's a it's good, yeah, good picture, a real great picture. film from a great director, but it looks spectacular. The black and white. It is does. outstanding in that movie, and it really aids the movie. Wexler's not just a cinematographer shooting a movie; he is coloring mm-hmm. in the movie, even if it's in black and white. I mean that quite literally. He understands the the work, he understands the the the, the script and the story, and he knows how to work that camera and the lighting to the story's benefit. And um, yeah, it's. I was really pleased to see that he was the at the beginning of the movie. We haven't mentioned it, but in the voiceover, Kazan actually names all of the actors or most of the actors and a lot of the crew. And when I heard him mention yeah. Wexler, it was like, oh, well, that's that's exciting. Yeah, yeah. no wonder this looks so <laughs> good. Yeah, so that that's my answer to you know the the aesthetic question of the movie it sounds like ken shares some of my enthusiasm did you guys have other scenes or sequences with you know directorial trademarks or flourishes that really stuck out to you any of the exteriors particularly in the first act uh in terms of shooting on location i thought were really uh helped or made the movie better um like when they're the scene where he encounters johannes and like watches there's like a it's like a shot reverse shot where he watches Johannes like walk back over the mountain and he just refers back to him like five times. Um, stuff like that. I think really worked. Um, but like a lot the, the rest of it's like interiors. It kind of didn't matter to me if they were on location or on a set, but uh, I really like the exteriors shooting on location in Greece yeah. and Turkey. And you know, when he's leaving the family, he's pretty minuscule against the, yeah kind of insane backdrop there and then his mom is the last one to turn away and i was also struck you know when he descends from the the hill mountain whatever you call it in an extreme long shot after murdering abdul as well yeah. i thought was a was a really fascinating shot um ken did you were there any scenes or sequences that stuck out for you aesthetically uh i was quite taken early on when he's back in the home, hometown and just kind of i guess reinforced the position of the family but him looking him him in the hallway when he's coming back he's being led to the governor's uh, I guess the governor's office or mansion or whatever it is, and he's seen his father up in the window, um, which I love that tracking shot by the way as the camera is panning and shows the governor and um, and Stavros's father in the window. But when he finally enters the building and he's outside the office, he can see through the doorway and he can see his father kissing the governor's hand, which is right yeah. directly reminiscent of what his father made him do. Um, the night before, yeah. I guess, when he had been after he, yeah, him. he had been yeah. out all day with Vartan, the Armenian, and yeah, he slaps him across the head, the face the night before, makes him kiss his hand, and here his father's doing it to the governor, and it it sparks something in him clearly because he's very frustrated and ends up instead of walking all the way home with his father, runs off to Granny's. Which, by the way, before we end this, we have to talk about Grandma, uh, 
Oh, she Topa was Zulu, Zulu. I don't know how to pronounce the last name, so I shouldn't try. But uh, grandmother, I love her. But um, yeah, the, I love the shot though um, through the doorway and the night before when his father does slap him. We we kind of lose sight in the shot of the other men who are I guess in the living area. I don't know if the rest of the, the rest of the men are family. I think they're actually guests or neighbors or whatever. Um, but mom is still in the shot and she is constantly throughout this early part of the film left just outside of the goings on between Stavros and his father because his father is really putting everything on Stavros and because men are chief in this culture, Stavros being the older of um, the father really, he cares more, I think, about making sure Stavros is set and, and is following the traditions in, uh, of their culture. Um, but mom, she's trying so hard to just do the right thing at various times and to anticipate her husband, and he's shooting her down in every yeah. every effort. But um, I particularly like those shots because it reinforces kind of an understanding of the dynamics between all of these characters in this world. Um, I, I really, really like those. Also, much credit has to go to, I think, Dee Dee Allen, who's the editor. Um, this whole picture for three hours, I think it's really, really beautifully edited. And it's edited with realism in mind because Dee Dee Allen is certainly yeah. somebody who is inspired by the French New Wave, inspired by European film at this time period. You mentioned the American New Wave is coming. Dee Dee Allen infamously edits Bonnie and Clyde just a few years after this. Um, and her mentor was Robert Wise, a filmmaker and also an editor oh. um, previous to him being a film director, obviously Citizen Kane, for example. So I, a lot of the credit, I think, should go to Dee Dee Allen as well because in post-production... She is really doing a fantastic job of, of piecing this film together just so. She also edited Dog Day Afternoon, previously right. discussed hey. on this podcast. Yeah. I don't know if it's the editing or the writing, but I found the pacing to be a little off for me. I thought like the first 50-ish minutes before he leaves home was pretty slow. And then like the second hour when he's getting robbed by the brother guy and uh, working for like nine months to get his money back and then losing all his money to a sex worker. Like that's like edited like a breakneck pace to the point that I kind of like <laughs> was a little confused and I had to like follow along with the Wikipedia page with Wikipedia oh. summary to make sure I knew what was happening. Uh, and then it slows down pretty dramatically again in like the third hour. So I don't know. It's just like, it just seemed like uh, uneven to me pacing wise. There was, there were two things that I don't, I didn't make notes of them, but two things in the third hour where it seemed like, there was a deleted scene because I didn't know how somebody mm. knew something and I shouldn't have even really brought this up because I don't have notes on them but there were two times where I was like wait hold on did this person tell the other person that and I was able to figure it out but it did seem a little a little jumpy there for me but well like we already alluded like I I, I have no idea what he's really doing when he goes into that wedding and like starts screaming and <laughs> dancing in circles and mm-hmm. it's like cross cut with Johannes jumping off the ship yeah well, I, I, I think really what he's seeing there. there is he he's seeing an image of um, happiness, an, intr- an interest, uh, sorry, an image of what he could have had had he stayed back with Tomna. He's seeing an image of upper class society, which he never really is going to achieve. And he kind of has this somewhat violent outburst, but also an outburst that places him reenacting postures of like the dance, the cultural dance of the homeland that we saw at the beginning. And so there's this really interesting kind of like uh, possession that takes hold of him there. That's once rooted in, I think his heritage, but also is rooted in an outburst of anger in a certain way. 
Um, I don't know. That's how I read that scene. Yeah, I read the scene as him literally allowing himself to lose control. He kind of he, he yeah. snaps and yeah. allows just something to just you know, possession is a good is a good um, term I guess for it. He allows something to possess him and doesn't try doesn't really stop it. Now the cross cutting though with uh, Johannes, um, that one I'll be honest, I have a little more difficulty trying to to find the connection there. Um, obviously, Johannes is sacrificing himself. Um, assumedly, he's probably got Stavros in mind because Stavros is over there, and Stavros is suddenly feeling desperate. I mean, at this point, what we're talking about is both of them have learned. Uh, obviously, Stavros knows he's got he's going to be sent back because his sponsor is given up on him, the the Kababians. and Johannes has tuberculosis. It's suggested he's coughing, right. so he's going to be sent back because he's not going to be allowed in. Um, so they're both on the ship. They both realize they're not going to be allowed off the next day to Ellis Island. And so part of the anger you figure in Stavros is the fact that he's going to have to go back and do this all over, which he said he would. Yeah. And Johannes. So damn, so damn close. Unfortunately for Johannes, he's got, if he's got tuberculosis, you're not sure he's, if he, even if he, they're going to ship him back, he's not just going to get better. Not going to make right. it. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Stavros has a chance though, whether he has to go back and come back, he has a chance. And so Johannes is sacrificing him possibly to give him just a slight, a slight help, a slight uh, upper hand, similar to the way he helped him earlier with the shoes and has been kind yeah. of supporting him along the way, even trying to help him hide his tuberculosis um, the, the earlier in the day. So right. it's... Doesn't Johannes leave his shoes behind before he jumps Yes, up? he takes his shoes yes. off and yeah. leaves them on board. Um, and then, of course, Stavros ends up shining shoes yes right um which is a lovely thing um before we wrap up with the kind of boilerplate questions at the end josh do you have any final thoughts last things to say about america america before we get to our closing questions uh should i do letterbox sure josh's populist corner okay um people seem to like this on letterbox a good bit it has a 3.8 which is pretty good um not many ratings or reviews but that's i mean that's pretty substantial um and most of the top reviews are all like somewhere between tepid and pretty warm uh aren't aren't really any negative reviews um here's a clip from a five-star review uh this five-star review which i want to know was mostly plot summary but here's just a a little poll that i thought was interesting uh quote is a powerful immigrant tale made even more poignant by the modern day objections of the turkish government to the way their country is portrayed in the film uh that i think makes the movie more political than I think it is in practice. But, I mean, it is a pretty political film, I guess, in that sense. Uh, A three-star review. This is just a portion of it. Quote, The film is a coming-of-age tale focusing on the ambitions of Stavros, where America is purely an idea in his mind driving him forward. All of the main character suffering is plotting towards his end goal, sometimes to maddening effect. All his relationships come to be defined by his desire to make it abroad, fueled by a desire to make his family proud and to escape the injustices his people have suffered as a minority in Turkey. And I think that's kind of touching on like what we talked about, where like America is an ideal and it's it's more a, a concept than anything concrete. Um, which I guess your mileage may vary on that. Uh, this is a clip. Actually, this is just a four and a half star review in its entirety. This isn't even a clip. It's a whole review. Quote, I think there is often a real sense of pride that comes from being the child of the immigrants. And Kazan displays that pride beautifully here. I think the pride comes from how impossible it all seems. But the reason you're here is because someone did it. You hear the stories from your parents and you can't believe anyone would do what they did for anything. 
but you can't believe it because you've never lived in the conditions they lived in. I know America is terrible, but as Kazan later said when defending the film, quote, to oppressed people, America is still a dream. Which, again, I kind of think kind of gets to the heart of why he's making this and what he hopes people get out of it. And then I thought that was nice and contrasted. These are actually two reviews that were right next to each other on Letterboxd when I listed them. Uh, so what you just had, which is to oppress people, America is still a dream, and you can't believe anyone would do this, but whatever. And then the review right below that is a three-star review that simply says, nobody wants to be in America that badly. <laughs> End of review. <laughs> um, and that's can all I got you... Letterboxd. Ken, do you have uh, closing final thoughts before our last boilerplate questions? I, I just, I was surprised by how how much I enjoyed this movie. Like I said, I was hesitant going into it because of the descriptions. It didn't really jump out at something something that was really going to bowl me over. Um, and maybe that's a good thing. I didn't go in with high expectations. And I was very pleased with what I found, despite the fact that I don't particularly love the lead performance. Um, I do... I do really enjoy a lot of the characters in the film. I like the settings. Uh, I like the production design in many places. And even if I don't necessarily also, as I mentioned, or as I alluded to earlier, I don't necessarily agree with what Kazan may be intending the message to be in this film or what he wants audiences to take away. Um, but I really came to appreciate the immigrant's journey that I saw on the screen that I took away and um, kind of, introducing me to a world and a collection of characters that I found to be compelling. Again, even even if uh, uh, or uh, is, is performance is not necessarily on par with what I wanted, um, a lot of the performances, I think, do really, really well to create some kind of warmth. It, it just settled with me. It was a, it was a lovely watch. Yeah. So I'm really pleased with having taken an opportunity to, to, to view it. Well said. Um... We'll, we'll do a lot more of the Oscar stuff in the 63 wrap-up episode, but just briefly, this was nominated for four Oscars. It was Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, and Best Art Direction. It wins Best Art Direction. Uh, I'm going to wrap all of these questions into one as a, how does this movie hold up to you as a Best Picture nominee? Josh? Uh, I didn't much care for it. So um, it was a tough set for me. Uh, I, I think I see the things it's doing. Like, I, I don't think I'm missing much. It just, I was on the same wavelength, I guess. Um, I, I don't know. I guess I can see the the appeal to the Academy, um, particularly because it's made by Lee Kazan, who's already won Best Director twice before this movie comes out. Um, so, I don't know. It doesn't really work for me, but I guess I get it as a Best Picture nominee. Okay. All right. Yeah, Ken? I actually uh, quite, like, uh, quite like the film as I admitted to, so... I'm okay with it being here. I'll be completely honest with you. There's only five nominees at this point uh, for Best Picture. I wouldn't have nominated it myself. I wouldn't have voted for it to be one of the five Best Picture nominees. Um, but I can appreciate the reaction, and I can appreciate it being here, particularly, um, and we'll talk more in future episodes and during the recap, um, this is an odd year with an odd grouping of films, and this is the only one, as yeah. I mentioned at the top of the episode, that I was unfamiliar with, to be honest with you, from what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. Um, so with that in mind, I'm actually okay with it being here. It's, again, not necessarily my personal choice among the five, or I mean, of, <laughs> of the top five films for 1963. I'm not sure, again, that I'd have nominated it. Um, but of the films that are, in fact, nominated this year... I'm okay with this one being there, I think. 
Yeah, I, I liked this quite a bit. I was pretty pleasantly surprised by it. And I'll have to wait until we get through the other four, um, as well as some other 1963 movies that I want to watch. But to borrow what our guest Dave did a few, <laughs> at this point, maybe a dozen episodes ago, um, if I take what I think is the immediate Best Picture nominee like throughout history, I think this is better than half. Sure. Um, so that's that's kind of where I would place it. I don't think it's an all-timer for me, but I do think it's kind of better than average movie that gets nominated for Best Picture. So I was I was pleased with that. But um, that's all I have to say. So hopefully you found this to be an adequate discussion of America, America. I did, I did. It was adequate, adequate. Um, and thank you for joining us for this week. Next week, we've got Cleopatra. Um, it Coming is at you. Four hours and eleven minutes long. Yeah, so don't, so don't sit on your ass, folks. We're uh, we're diving in from the start. Speaking of Virginia Woolf, That's we got right. Liz Taylor and Dick. Burton. We've got yeah, absolutely. So get started on your homework early because it's it's quite a bit of reading for next week. Um, but we hope to we hope you join us again. So thank you again for listening. Have a wonderful week and take care. Goodbye. No sheep ever saved its neck by bleeding.